if you would turn with me or listen on as I read Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. Acts 4, 32 through 5, 11. Hear God's word. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone uh, say that uh, any of these things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of the, of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And let us pray together. Our father in heaven, we thank you once more for your word. We are especially thankful for the book of Acts. It's, it's a book about uh, the very thing we're doing, the church. And God, that, that's something that's very precious to us. It's very instructive to us. And we pray you would keep on teaching us about what you would have us to be as a church. Amen. Well, as we continue to unfold... This series of Acts and what Luke is saying, it's fascinating uh, to see how every new situation, uh, and I see this as one situation, it doesn't quite fit the chapter headings, but beginning in chapter 4, verse 32 to 511, it's, it's a new situation that faced this newly formed church. Each of these uh, new situations contributes to the overall picture uh, that Luke is painting of the early church. Uh, but it is also, as I say, confronting in confronting them with new problems and and them finding solutions. It's instructive in that sense as well. 
So the first thing I would notice are the dangers facing the early church. That really becomes the focus in chapters 4, 5, and 6. We see the success they were having in chapters 2 and 3. Luke seems eager to tell us about the dangers they faced in chapters 4, 5, and 6. We're right in the midst of that. And I would remind you here that the work of God never goes unopposed. Indeed, the greater the work, the greater the opposition. And, uh, and well, if, if Satan is roaming about like a, like a lion looking for someone to devour, it's true he, he, he finds the Christian often in times of sleepiness, but it's also true. And the scriptures and the history of the church, and I think our own experience will bear out the truth of this, that the opportune time for him is often the time that we would least expect it. And that's the time when uh, the work of God is flourishing. When the work of God is flourishing, what do we find? We find that Satan is raging and that Satan is busy opposing the church. Now you say, why does God allow that? You see, that's one of the things that the church itself was grappling with here. And we need to grapple with it too because there would be a temptation for us to think that the church at her best, the church as she is filled with the Holy Spirit and under the ministry of the apostles and people are simply flooding into the church would be a church simply with no problems. But nothing could be further from the truth. Even at her best, just as we know of ourselves, even at our best, there are many difficulties, there's many trials, and there are many enemies. And the enemies, we discover at times, can be quite surprising. The enemy might be ourselves, our own sin. The enemy might be uh, a dear member of the church. We ought to see the wisdom of God in this. This is something that I keep stressing and that the New Testament keeps stressing. God, God loves to test the church. That's one thing that we should see. It is impossible to be a Christian. It is impossible to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and go untested. Indeed, that's one of the surest signs that you are a child of God. It's that you're being opposed. It's that the world hates you. It's that you're facing trials and temptations. The devil doesn't trouble the unbeliever. He troubles the sons of God. But the wisdom of God in this is seen that uh, the, the believer in triumphing over the devil. Uh, well, God gets the glory in that. God is proving who his true sons are. In other words, you can't take these things for granted. He's finding out, even as he's doing here and as he did in the Old Testament, who the real ones are. Well, along with John Stott, I would notice three primary dangers. There are these dangers that face the church, always, especially in her best times. And John Stott very helpfully summarizes those as we find them in succession in in, um, chapters 4 through 6. The first threat or danger is that of persecution or opposition from the world. That's what we find in chapter 4. You you have men literally... uh, Silenced or sought to be silenced by the authorities. They are thrown in prison. All sorts of pressures that the world brings upon the church. In some ways, that's the easiest to withstand. But as we go on to the next, we find subtler and more difficult ones. And, and, and those are those from within the church. John Stott calls them moral corruption and compromise. That was the danger here. It was the presence of hypocrisy in Ananias and Sapphira. 
It was the, the danger or the threat of compromise, how easy it would have been to look the other way and how and how often we are confronted with that temptation. The church is surging in her numbers. She's flourishing. New people are flooding in. Maybe we want to look the other way when they are sinning in grievous ways, when their hypocrisy, uh, we don't want to think, is threatening the very fellowship that the spirit is nurturing and fostering in the church. What happens when the, earth, when the church is unwilling to deal with sin? You see, that's the danger. And that, in reality, is a far greater danger than the danger that comes from without. If we look at what the Apostle Paul says about false teachers or sin in the church, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says it's like gangrene that spreads if you don't deal with it right away. Or it's like leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, he says. You've got to deal with sin. And if you're not willing to deal with sin, well, then you've compromised. And compromise is something that threatens the church always. I think we might know something about that in the 21st century American church. But we need to realize this is something that the early church faced as well. We find it in Corinth. We find it in the churches that are rebuked in Revelation. But that's not it. There's a third. There's a third one. John Stott, he says, the subtlest ploy of the enemy is distraction. That's, by the way, chapter 5 was the second one. Uh, chapter 4 was the first one. Chapter 6 is the third one. Distraction. What happens simply when the church loses her focus? When she becomes bogged down with administration? When she's overwhelmed with the needs of her people and even the needs of the culture? She's distracted. Now, that again, I would say, Describes very well the church as we know her today. The apostles very, very cleanly summarize their task as devoting themselves to the ministry of prayer and the preaching. And that's it. And they say, if you take me away from that, I'm going to lose my focus and the church is going to suffer. Well, once they were able to focus on that again, when they were able to keep the main thing, the main thing, then the church began to flourish again. But so long as they were distracted, the church was threatened. We should also notice the remedies. I think I was already describing them, but let me just list them. The first remedy to the first problem is prayer. That's what we find. You see, Luke isn't just saying these were the dangers. He also is saying this is what they did about it. The second remedy to the second promise, well, or problem rather, well, let us see in the sermon. That's the whole point of the sermon. I don't want to give it away just yet. But the, the, the third re- remedy to the third problem is And I was saying this already, keep the main things the main thing. That, that will become the focus in chapter 6. If a minister is not focused on preaching, but he's concerned about 10 other things, then he won't be a good soldier, he won't be a good workman. Well, let us turn now as a second point to what we have in this section. As I say, it's, it's a new situation. The whole, the whole section from chapter 4, verse 32 to chapter 5, verse 11 comprises one unit. Though we could divide it in two. What we have in verses 32 through 37, so the end of chapter 4, is what I would call a happy picture of the church as she should be. This is something Luke loves to do. He's done it many times already. He'll keep doing it. He takes these snapshots, these summaries. He says, look at the church as she was then. She was flourishing. She was thriving. And he's eager to tell us what, uh, what was happening as he summarizes it. In essence, well, he just said they were praying, and now we see the prayer is answered. And what was the result? 
How did the church benefit as a result of God answering that prayer? Well, the first thing is the spirit was poured out. That's something we've got to recognize. We've got to get a hold of it. That even uh, after Pentecost, we say Pentecost was the outpouring of the spirit. Very well. I don't dispute that. But the spirit isn't finished being outpoured. We don't look for Pentecost again. That's a once for all event. But the spirit, having been poured out, is still being poured out. That's something we've got to realize. Acts wastes, or Luke wastes no time in making that clear to us. The spirit being poured out, chapter 2, is poured out again in chapter 4. Obviously, this is something that cannot be manufactured. The spirit is sovereign. He blows where he wills. And who can say when he will come? All we can say is when he does come, and this is totally obvious here, when he does come, we will know it. There's no way to mistake the spirits coming upon the church. And we will enjoy the happy and blessed effects of his presence among us. Well, what were they? Well, let us see that the spirit is for believers, but he's also for churches. I I keep saying this when Paul says be filled with the spirit, he's speaking to the church. He isn't just speaking to the individual believer. He's saying, I want you as a church to be filled with the spirit. And when you're filled with the spirit, you're going to see many happy effects of that in the church, not just in your individual life. And so it is possible. Let us see. Let us get a hold of this idea. Because it's one of the great thoughts and acts. It is possible and even desirable for entire fellowships of Christians to be filled with the Spirit. To pray for it and then to experience His fullness. And so what, well, what Luke is essentially saying here is that Christian fellowship is the result of the Spirit's ministry in the church. When the spirit is outpoured upon a church, it leads to Christian fellowship. And so we see here that they were of one heart and one soul. That's the first thing he says, in fact, in verse uh, in verse 32. They were of one heart and one soul. That's the thing Luke keeps emphasizing. It's a kind of refrain that we find throughout these. Well, these these four uh, five and a half chapters we've read. He, he wants us to see this, this unity that the church enjoyed. The church was one. Another way we could put this is the communion of the saints. That's a chapter you'll find in our confession. And if you read that chapter, chapter 26 of the confession, the communion of the saints, you would find a description that, uh, that uh, resembles what we have here in Acts. The interest that believers are supposed to have in one another. This wasn't just something they were reading in a book, as maybe, as maybe we might do if we open our confessions later tonight. It was actually the reality for them. They were enjoying Christian fellowship. They were of one heart and one soul. All through the New Testament, you find this emphasis. You can hardly read a single one of the epistles without finding uh, the apostle who wrote it, urging the church to this. You see, uh, what they're suggesting is that it isn't enough to have certain happy feelings about the Lord, but we should have certain happy feelings about our believers, our, our brothers, I mean. They're constantly emphasizing how believers are to treat one another. 
Let me say this again, as I was stressing this morning. Salvation is not just a personal concern. Just as soon as a man is saved, he becomes interested in other believers. And that's where the church comes in. And that is precisely how Luke presents salvation in the book of Acts. A man is saved and he comes into the church. His interest in his believers, in, in fellow believers, is immediately evident in his life. And as that multiplies by as many members as are found in the church, you find this wonderful fellowship, this wonderful unity. You find in the church the communion of the saints. You find that the Spirit is not only uniting a man to the Lord, but that the Spirit is uniting believers to one another. It is the Holy Spirit, I say again, who produces true Christian fellowship, true Christian unity. He is the bond of our unity and peace, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Another thing we find is the preaching of the apostles among them. They were united and with great power, Luke tells us, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. No surprise to find that there either. We find the apostles who were full of the spirit were preaching. In other words, as the people were gathered together as Christians, they were holding Christian services and the apostles would preach there. These have sometimes been called preaching services. I think that's how you could describe our worship. The focus of the service is the preaching. So it was here. They were filled with the spirit. They were united. They came together and they sat under the preaching of the apostles. We notice the kind of preaching it was. Uh, 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 well, I don't know that it was Peter. It's just it was the apostles with great power. The apostles gave witness. Do you notice how often Luke is saying that? They were preaching with power. We also see what they preached. With great power, they gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as Peter did at Pentecost. This was the focus of their ministry. The Holy Spirit produced in them this powerful preaching ministry by which they again and again focused upon the great facts of salvation. And the greatest fact of all is the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And when the Spirit comes upon the church, that's what you'll find. You'll find powerful preaching. You'll find the emphasis upon the resurrection. Another thing we see is that great grace was upon them all. It's a very fascinating statement. It's one of those statements, if you pulled out four commentaries and you read them all, you would find that nobody has any idea what that means. What does that mean to say great grace was upon them all? Just as soon as you ask the question, you realize, well, I don't know. What, what did Luke mean when he said that? Well, the only way that I can think to answer that question is that this is another unmistakable reality that only the Spirit can produce. You almost can't describe it. It's just something you have to experience. When the Spirit comes, the thing that you become conscious of is not merely the presence of the Spirit, but the grace of the Spirit. The grace of the gospel is something that you're conscious of. You begin to talk about it. You begin to experience it. You remember how the writer of the Hebrews says that there's grace to help in time of need to the believer. Well, that's precisely what becomes available to the believer at such times. But I would go even further because he doesn't just say grace is upon them all. They were conscious of it. They were experiencing it. He says great grace 
was upon them all. This was the thing they were enjoying together as a result of the Spirit. And as they were enjoying it, they were conscious of its greatness. Great grace was upon them all. But the last thing we see that the Spirit produced in this church, this fellowship, as a kind of manifestation of his power and of his presence and of his grace, as an evidence of the Christian unity that he produced, was the concern they had for each other's material needs. And really, that becomes the focus. We read in verses 34 and 35, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. There's several things we need to note about this. This is a passage which is easily misunderstood. Although it's important to understand. It's important to see this in the early church. Luke was stressing it in Acts chapter 2. The first thing that I would stress is that it was purely voluntary. And there's no way to read this passage and come to any other conclusion. Certainly many have tried. Many have tried to say that coming into the church, they were compelled to give up all that they had. And and, and to sell it and give it to the apostles. And if they did it, well, the Lord would kill you. But that isn't actually the picture here. There was no kind of compulsion. And I want to try to make that as clear as I can. The institution of the New Testament church did not spell the abolition of private property. That isn't what we find here. The principle uh, that we find here is the same principle we find in the great passage on giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 5 and 7. Let me turn there so I can read those verses to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 5. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go uh, to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. A matter of generosity. You're not forced to do this. Verse 7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves the cheerful giver. It's a matter of voluntary giving. Peter himself makes this crystal clear when he says to Ananias, while this is verse 4, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. It should be clear from that verse what their real sin was, but I'll, I'll save that for later. But having said that, it was something voluntary, purely. There was no compulsion to do so. The, my second point about this, having said that it was first voluntary, is to say second, that there is a kind of generosity here that is breathtaking. It is astonishing. It's stunning. It's humbling. When we see... What these first Christians were doing, we are, we are, uh, we are amazed. Is it, is it really possible that people once lived like this? That they were so concerned for the well-being of one another that they would go so far as, in essence, to stand ready. They would hold their possessions uh, at ready and sell them as soon as the need arose so that they could take care of one another. That is an amazing picture to see. I don't want to minimize that at all. 
I want to totally maximize that picture in your estimation. And to hold that before you as an example of Christian fellowship that should utterly amaze you. They were not, as Paul says in another place, seeking out their own interests. They were seeking the interest of one another. That's the communion of the saints. How can you read of that and not be humbled to the core? Let let me read what uh, John Stott says, or, or excuse me, I'm reading from John Stott, but actually it's John Calvin. Uh, Stott quotes Calvin. He says, we must have hearts that are harder than iron if we're not moved by the reading of this narrative. In those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We in our own day are content not just jealously to retain what we possess, but callously to rob others. I'm, I'm amazed at how Calvin preached at times. I read that, I think. I'm amazed anyone stayed, but he, he always does that. He, he let them have it. Well, I'm not going that far. I'm not calling you a bunch of robbers. Uh, but I would say that, uh, that I, would, I would agree with Calvin in the first line. We've got to have hearts harder than iron. If, if we don't stand humbled by what the early Christians did. Of course, at the same time, you have to realize this created problems of its own. Suddenly, the apostles were overwhelmed. People were bringing all these gifts. They were the ones distributing them. And very soon, we'll see that that brought things to another breaking point. That was another problem that uh, faced or even threatened the early church. But am I saying, having made those two points, am I saying, well, that's what you need to do. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying I want you to hold your possessions in ready. I want you to sell them and I want you to lay them at my feet. I'm not saying that. But I'll tell you what I am saying. I'm saying that if you take this chapter as a whole, which we might have done, though we didn't, you need to remember what came before this, what preceded this amazing generosity. Well, it was the outpouring of the Spirit. It was the Spirit who created And produce this kind of amazing fellowship. And how was it that they ever came by the Spirit? It was by prayer. They were praying for the Spirit. They were begging God to send forth His Spirit. And when the Spirit came upon them, they were totally open to the kind of work that He was doing among them. And so I would say to you, in light of this humbling generosity, that we should notice the pattern of the early church. And we should pray for the Spirit. We shouldn't... In other words, try to manufacture this kind of generosity. This is a kind of generosity and a kind of fellowship only the Spirit can produce. No, don't try to manufacture it. But I would say to pray for the Spirit and then to be open to his influence. And you might be amazed at how generous he makes you. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And he loves to make Christians cheerful givers so that he can bless them. But let me turn as a third point to what we have following that. After giving a general snapshot, Luke, and this is also what Luke continues to do, he gives these summaries and then he gives particular instances of what he just summarized. Now, there were many things he said there, but he he talked about fellowship, he talked about preaching, but he wants to pinpoint this aspect of generosity, this aspect of giving as as uh, an instance of Christian fellowship, uh, as a result of the Spirit. And so he focuses on that by giving two examples. And they are examples which are polar opposites. They appear on the surface to be very similar, but they end up being very different. So uh, let us, along with the early readers of Acts, 
uh, consider this point through these two examples. What is Luke telling us? Well, he, first he gives a positive example. He speaks of Barnabas, who uh, was a, a Levite of the country Cyprus. Uh, having, sold, having land, he sold it and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here was a man who was doing precisely what Luke had just said some of the Christians were doing. Not under compulsion. He did it freely. He did it voluntarily. He did it gladly. He was happy to do it. He held nothing back. He was moved by the Spirit uh, to this amazing act of generosity. He was just the kind of person that Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 9. He was a cheerful giver. Why was he a cheerful giver? Well, he was a cheerful giver because he was a Christian who was full of the Spirit. That's it. There's almost nothing more to say. The only, the only thing more that I could say is, and you notice there's very little that's said about him. The, the, the only thing I could say about him beyond the fact that he was a wonderful example is that he was such a wonderful example that unfortunately others thought, maybe I want to imitate what he did. Perhaps it was the case, and it seems likely that it was the case, though he did not seek it. He found a certain measure of prestige among his believers. Look at this man's generosity. Are you not amazed to see what he did? Yes, he was esteemed by his brothers. And there were others with covetous hearts, evil hearts like Judas, who desired not the grace that he knew, not the spirit that he knew. But they desired the same esteem that he knew. And so... Having said so little about him, because there really is nothing more to say, let us focus on the other side of those about whom much is said, and that is Ananias and Sapphira. You see, I didn't save this for another sermon, because it really does fit in here. This is the negative example of the generosity. This is a pretended generosity. At first blush, as I said earlier on, it seems that they had done the same thing. Both Ananias and Barnabas sold their property and they laid it at the apostles' feet for their distribution. Only Peter immediately perceived how we do not know. But Peter was so full of the spirit as an apostle that he was given at times a miraculous supernatural insight into things. And so it would seem something like that was going on. He immediately perceived by the spirit that Ananias was only pretending to do the same thing. But that he, as I say, like Judas, his heart was full of covetousness and deceit. Of course, as Peter says in verse 4, they were free to do uh, with what was theirs as they pleased. That wasn't the question. They were under no compulsion to sell what they had. And having sold it, they were under no compulsion to give any or all at the apostles' feet. That wasn't their sin. He wasn't saying, why didn't you give me everything, Ananias? He was saying, why did you pretend to do so? Why did you sell it all and keep some back from yourself, but seek the credit that a man like Barnabas got, who did sell it all and give it all? The sin of Ananias was the sin of the Pharisees. It was hypocrisy. And that's the leaven, uh, I'll say in a bit, that you cannot allow to spread in the church. It was the sin of hypocrisy. It was pretending to be something they weren't. Pretending to be a Barnabas when they were a Judas or when he was a Judas. They wanted the same credit as Barnabas, the same esteem while doing less than he. And the reason Peter calls us, you, you, you might wonder, why did he say you're not lying to men but the Holy Spirit? That's another one of those 
phrases that you, that you could ponder for a long time. And, and, and Luke really doesn't explain. What did he mean by that? But I think the answer is because by his hypocrisy, Ananias was placing into jeopardy the very fellowship that the Spirit produced. He, he, Luke was just telling us, look at what happened when the church was full of the Spirit. Do you see the kind of happy Christian fellowship they enjoyed? And Peter was surely conscious of that as well. He was rejoicing in it. He was enjoying it. Enjoying it. He was giving the credit where it was due to the Spirit. And along comes this man threatening it. And he says, you know, you're not sinning against me. You're sinning against the Spirit. You're lying against the Spirit. You're calling his work a lie. You're falsifying it by your sin. Seeking to claim the credit of his work when you know nothing of him. You were not compelled by the spirit to be generous. You were compelled by envy. Well, that's a dangerous thing to do. It's a dangerous thing to oppose the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of thing that should frighten any one of us. And do you see what happens to both of them? Uh, Not just Ananias, but Sapphira. Both of them die. Not only that, but what happens to the church as a result we read in both cases, following the account of their death, we read this phrase, and great fear fell on, the, on them all. Who, who, are, who was he talking about? Well, he was talking about those who were full of the Spirit, those who were Christians, those who were enjoying this Christian fellowship. Well, let's add that to the list. What happens when a church becomes full of the Spirit? Well, when a church becomes full of the Spirit, it becomes very dangerous to sin in a brazen fashion. It becomes fearful to do so. And that is the kind of fear that ought to be impressed and that is impressed upon the very ones who are enjoying this Christian fellowship. They realized, as we ought to realize along with them, that the fellowship that the Spirit produces is often and always in jeopardy. This, it was about this that Machen said. I've read this time and again. I love this quote. He says, It is well that this incident has been recorded. It prevents a one-sided impression of the church's life. The power that animated the church was beneficent, but it was also terrible and mysterious and holy. Well, this is, let us admit, a very striking it's, a, it's, it's an alarming incident to read. We're surprised to find it here. Perhaps we're not surprised to find it in the Old Testament. They stoned Achan to death. And then, and then I think, didn't we read, they burned his corpse as well. It's, it's alarming in a sense, but not when we place it within the context of the Old Covenant. And yet we come along here and we find very early on, we've barely made any progress in Acts, and the Lord just struck two people dead. That's striking. That's... Well, that's startling in a sense. And we need to try to make sense of it. How did this happen? What are we to learn from it? Well, it's instructive. It's instructive for us to see what a spirit-filled fellowship is like. It's instructive uh, along the lines of these three lessons. And I'll close with this. The first is, uh, as I said earlier on, I'll state again. As a kind of one of my closing points, Christian fellowship is always in jeopardy. We've got to see that. And that is something that that smacks us in the face here in in, in as startling a way as possible. The Lord was blessing these people mightily. 
He was sparing the life for a time of his preachers. And yet he just killed two of the members. We might have thought that would not be the case here. We might have thought that the fellowship that the spirit produced would be free of any blemish at all. But that is never true. The church that is full of the spirit will still have Achan's. It will still have a Judas. It will still have an Ananias. It is always a mistake that it won't. It isn't just here that we see this. We see it. Well, we see it in Leviticus chapter 10. The worship of the church is instituted in the Old Testament. The priests are ordained. The the, the sacrifices have begun. And what's the first thing you read? You read Leviticus chapter 10. You read of the sin of, uh, I'm sorry, I'm tired. I don't remember their names. But these two men, and the Lord killed them there just as he did here. Those two sons, what were their names? I can't remember. But it's precisely what you have here. There's a really important lesson there. Oh, it's the strange fire. I wish I could remember. Don't tell me. Uh, you go on in, in Leviticus 24. Uh, you, find, you find just exactly the same thing. You find it in Joshua. The conquest is proceeding. It is immediately placed in jeopardy. Do you realize there's a kind of principle we've got to, we've got to get a hold of? That just as soon as the fellowship is formed, just as soon as it really becomes what it's supposed to, well, then the sinner is found out and it's placed in jeopardy. You go through the you go through the epistles. You find this. You find you find sins and errors taking hold of the church with surprising speed and effectiveness. We've got to understand the exhortation. Nadab and Abihu. There are their names. It just came to me. We've got to understand the exhortation that all of us must stand lest we fall. Do you realize that what we have in Leviticus 10, which I actually think is the stronger parallel than than uh, than Joshua 7. But in Joshua 7, too, and here, that what Luke is doing and what God is doing in all of those places is warning the church. He's saying no matter how things, how good things get, you're always in jeopardy of losing what you have. You're always in jeopardy. And the the exhortation to the church is ever take heed, stand lest you fall. Look at these men falling. And beware lest you fall along with them. Do not, do not be deceived, Paul says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's the trouble. We, we tend to be deceived. We tend to minimize the evils of sin in the midst of Christians. We think we're strong enough to uh, prevent that leaven, leaven from spreading. But we're not. Just a little bit of leaven, Paul says, will leaven the whole lump. The first lesson is. That you've got to deal with sin. You've got to. You cannot allow sin to fester and to spread and to rot. You've got to deal with it before it becomes a problem too great and the church is destroyed in her fellowship. The second lesson is this, that judgment always begins in the household of God. That's another important lesson that we have here in Acts. It doesn't begin, in other words, with these evil men who are persecuting the church, we will see that later in the case of Herod. And God certainly will deal with the enemies of God and of the church. But judgment always begins in the household of God. Let us see that here. Let us see it in Leviticus 10. By the way, that's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. It isn't, in other words, just the work of Satan disrupting the church or sinners in the church disrupting them. It's also the spirit himself at work. 
I don't mean that he's creating the sin, but he's stirring it up. He's bringing it to the surface. He's revealing it and he's dealing with it. Now, again, that's a startling thing. It's a kind of warning that the church needs to hear. You're only going to be able to brazenly defy God for so long. It doesn't matter who you are. You might be a minister. You might be an elder. You might be the, the oldest member in the church. You've got to be careful. Because the spirit as he comes upon the church purifies the church. He judges. Uh, he brings a kind of judgment against the wayward and the unrepentant. When the spirit comes upon the church, he will deal with us in his holiness. He will see that the church is made to partake of the holiness of God. Now, again, that's a very searching kind of kind of thing. You say, well, if the spirit does that, I'm not sure I want to pray for the spirit. Well, you've got to examine yourself here and ask, is that the kind of thing I want? Do I want the spirit to find out the sinner, deal with the sinner, even if that sinner is me? The final lesson is the importance of church discipline. We may not live in days where men die for their sin, though I think maybe we still do. It's hard to say. But I'm not telling you here that if you lie in this church that you're going to drop dead. I think this belongs in the class of the signs and wonders that were occurring in those days. And I would say that signs and wonders have passed for the present. But I would still tell you to be careful. Nevertheless, I think the true parallel here is excommunication. And just as we find that the, uh, the sinner uh, Achan was put to death by stones, so we find uh, later on, well, well, that was a picture of excommunication, so do this. Ananias and Sapphira were a picture of excommunication. And as the church takes form later on in the New Testament, you don't so much find people dropping dead, but you do find the apostles saying, you've got to cast the sinner out of the church when the spirit has come and the spirit has found him out, when the deeds done in darkness are brought to light. And we need leaders like Peter who are willing to deal with sin. The importance of excommunication, the importance of church discipline. You know, Peter shines brightly here. I don't want to make this passage about Peter, but Peter, I'm amazed by Peter here. This is another instance of his boldness and of his courage. What happens to a man when he's full of the Holy Spirit? Again, you could say it would have been easy. And certainly that is the temptation we would feel. People are coming in. We're enjoying fellowship. Let's overlook the sin and move on. There was no way Peter could allow that to happen. And the Lord wouldn't let him do it. He was going and he had to pronounce it a sin. Sin is sin. Hypocrisy. He was going to take the necessary measures to preserve the peace, the purity, the fellowship, the unity of the church. And so I ask you, do you see in this incident the importance of church discipline? And again, I ask you, it's a very searching question. It's a dangerous question. It's going to keep us from growing perhaps as much as we want. We might be bigger if we weren't this kind of church. But do we want to be this kind of church? Do we realize that if we pray for the spirit, that this kind of thing is inevitable, not just that more and more people will come and that we will be rejoicing in salvation in a way we never have. Great grace will be upon us, but there will also be the regular use. We hope not that regular, but the regular use of church discipline, even excommunication. We are willing to deal with the sinner. We're not deceived about uh, the leaven of sin. We're terrified of it. We know how destructive it can be to churches. We understand the danger it presents. And so I ask you as I close, do you want to be a church like that? 
In praying for the Spirit, do you want Him to produce these things in us? Well, then you've got to go back a chapter and see what they were doing in chapter 4. They were praying. And so you've got to pray. There's no other answer. You, you cannot manufacture these things. If you would have what they had, if you would be this kind of church, and I think in a large measure we are. We're on the way. The Spirit is at work. And He is producing these things in us. We can also say there's a long way to go. Do we want to go all the way? Well, then you've got to pray. You've got to ask God for the Spirit. And then you've got to be open to what the Spirit is able to do in our midst. Amen. And let us, let us return praise to God by singing together uh, a hymn of Christian fellowship and Christian unity. Hymn 409. Please stand 409. <laughs>